Thank you, Pastor Ron, and uh, good morning. Uh, as as uh, Pastor Ron said, my name is Eldon. I'm also privileged to serve on the pastoral team here at Central, and you don't see me very often, which is actually a good thing because I love uh, shepherding the people uh, in Agassiz. And uh, last week, I think it was November 15th anyway, marked my, uh, the beginning of my sixth year at Central. I've completed five years on this team. And uh, God is good, and he's continuing to do new things all the time on both sides of the mighty Fraser, on this side, but also on the north side, which is where my heart really is. And, uh, and so, yeah, Pastor Ron, in addition to Agassiz Harrison Community Services with Backpacks of Hope, we're also... Uh, uh, supporting the uh, La Camel uh, Food Sustainability Program, La Camel First Nation, which is where Pastor Chris is primarily working, and uh, we're doing that together. It's a real privilege. So as we get into the Word this morning, uh, if you've got a Bible, turn it to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we continue our series in this wonderful letter to the church at Corinth in the first century. If you need a Bible, there's some by the back doors you can... Take one, keep it. The word will also be written on the screen. You can follow along. And as you're turning, just want to ask you a question. Uh, does anyone remember uh, that first time, if you've had the experience, um, that you went to one of those sort of fancy restaurants where they, you know, the waiter would come to the table, uh, take the white linen, and then put it across your lap for you? Does, does anybody ever had that experience? I tell you, I can remember the first time that happened to me. It kind of took me by surprise. You know, I was like, whoa, you're getting a little close here. I, 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 actually, I actually didn't even know such a thing existed, white linen. You know, like we hardly ever use napkins at home, let alone white linen. I'm like, <laughs> gross. <laughs> uh, this morning, we're going to talk about etiquette, how to come to the table. And, and you see, there are different rules of etiquette based on different dining experiences, whether you're eating out casually or formally, or if you're eating in someone's home where the table manner rules will differ from place to place. So this October, this Thanksgiving, we were invited by our next door neighbors for a meal, which was wonderful. Uh, The night they chose, though, was the only night that it turns out that our son could make it. So we were going to do a meal on one of the opposite days and invite Josh, but uh, he couldn't make it. So Marcy and I had that dinner and, and then, and then, but you know, Josh says, well, I'd still like to partake in, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. Can we do this over at our neighbor's place at at Tom and Barb's? And we're like, uh, well, we'll ask them. Sure. And so sure enough. Yeah. Yeah. We'd love to have Josh around the table. And then Josh is like, uh, can my buddy SR come? And we're like, well, we'll check. (laughs) So yeah, why not? Bring him. And so the six of us around the table. And so now, um, boy from, well, young man from South India, our, our, our son Josh's buddy, SR, meet retired couple from Victoria. Uh, English background, prop, proper, right? And uh, so the, the boys show up, uh, the young men show up, and uh, SR is wearing a hat. And, uh, and it's one of, like, not really a ball cap, but one of those, like, sort of skater hats, right? You know, with the visor kind of pointing up and things like, I, I mean, I don't wear those, so I have no idea what I'm talking about right now, but that's what he was wearing. And so uh, we're visiting, you know, before dinner, and then we're, we're called to the table when the meal is ready. And so, uh, so Tom looks at SR and he says, do you want to take off your hat? And he's like, no, I'm good. 
Uh, and, and then, uh, and then he's like, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really, I'm not really asking you, do you want to take off your hat? I'm telling you at our table, we don't wear a hat. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Takes off the hat, sets it beside his chair and, and all was good. He's like, Ooh, I didn't know he was serious, but he was, uh, speaking of uh, the English and uh, dining etiquette and table manners. Uh, when I was doing some research on table manners for this uh, message, I went to a website called Debrett's of London, fairly new in English history. You know, they've only been around since 1769. Uh, but they have, uh, they, they categorize just table etiquette in 21 different categories. And underneath each one of those categories, there's multiple things that you should do and not do. And that doesn't even touch uh, royal dinner etiquette or high society in England, particularly when it comes to eating with the queen. This was amazing research. I mean, there are, there are significant rules about what you can and can't do, where and not where. When you eat dinner with the queen, it is formal. You don't show up in your pajamas. That's not something you do. It's a formal occasion. Um, you, are, you have to know how to sit, the correct poise and posture. The, the order in which people enter the room and even sit at the table is important. Um, you, you have to know how to fold your napkin after you've wiped your mouth and set it back on your lap. It has to be folded in a certain way for various reasons. Um, how you place your cutlery is important. Um, so if you have to excuse yourself from the table, which is appropriate for any given reason, uh, but you're coming back to eat, you set your cutlery down in a certain way. And then, and then your server will know that you're not finished. But if you set it in a, in a different way, they'll know that you're done eating. And uh, who you talk to during which course of the meal is also important. So like during the first course, you'll only talk to, I think it's this way, uh, the people on your left. And then when the second course is served, then you're allowed to talk to people on your right. If it's at like an international gathering, not just family, but uh, you know where you have people from other countries around the table and things like that. Um, uh, you're, you have to hold your teacup a certain way. Um, when it comes to eating with the queen, you don't start until she starts, and you don't, uh, you don't eat after she's finished. So the queen has been no, uh, known to actually leave a little morsel on her plate for the sake of, you know, the grandchildren and things like that, so that, you know, she'll every once in a while pick up her fork and just move that piece of food and just set it down again and, and just keep shuffling it around until she's noticed that most people are done eating. But when she sets her cutlery a certain way, everybody's finished. It seems a bit foreign to us, doesn't it? I mean, but that's uh, exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in our text this morning that I'm going to read. It's actually a letter. It's an instructional letter meant to tutor and coach a church who were missing the mark in a whole bunch of areas and dining etiquette being one of them. So he had to instruct them. I was told that, uh, you know, um, Meghan Markle, who married into royalty through uh, Prince Harry, uh, received six months of royal etiquette tutoring so that she would know how to do it right. Six months of, of tutoring. And so today, Paul is tutoring us, but we don't have six months. We've got uh, a crash course coming up today on how to approach a different table, the most significant table that there is. It's the Lord's Supper, the table of communion. And this church in Corinth, they had atrocious table manners, and they needed to learn proper etiquette because there is actually a right way and a wrong way to partake of the Lord's Supper. 
So before we come to the table this morning, let's, uh, let's be instructed, let's be tutored by the Apostle Paul. So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and starting at verse uh, 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Here's my favorite phrase in the, in the passage. What? <laughs> what? What are you doing? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, my sisters, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. The word of the Lord. Let's get into this. Uh, Verse 17, let's back up right to the beginning. Uh, Paul writes, but in the following instructions, here I am about to tutor you or coach you in table manners. I I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. So when I was doing my research on table manners, I found um, a a website that had a chart. And on the left side, it was table manner do's. And on the right side, it was the table manner don'ts. And I'm going to follow the same kind of format this morning, but the do's and the don'ts, the better, as Paul says, and the worse... (laughs) Um, they are all found in our text this morning. So here we are, table manners, do's, and don'ts. They all come from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 to the end. The first one is this, unity, and the worst is divisions and factions. This is how you come to the table. You come unified, not divided, not in factions, Unity, in fact, is the main issue uh, in this letter uh, to this church because the church was very divided on a number of things and the Lord's Supper was yet another area in which they uh, showed their division. Uh, scripture tells us uh, in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, that it is, it is good, it is pleasant 
when brothers and sisters, when the family of God, the people of God dwell together in unity. It's good. On on the flip side, if you go to Proverbs uh, chapter 6, it's a passage that I take very seriously. I, I actually tremble when I read it because it impacts me so much as it does all of us. Proverbs 6, 6 16 to 19, I won't read it all, but the Lord says there are six things that I hate. Seven, then he adds another one at the end, seven that are, and then he raises the level of intensity, seven that are an, an abomination to me. So what is it that the Lord hates? And when he adds the seventh, what is an absolute atrocious table manner? God says, one who sows discord among brothers. A person who sows discord uh, is exercising extremely poor table manners and and really uh, should not come to the table. That's what Paul says. Uh, Pastor Ron picked me up uh, early this morning and he was asking, where where are we in in the Corinthians and what are you preaching on today? So I was talking about table manners and he goes, I asked him, by the way, if I could say this. He says, when I was growing up, he said, my mom was very strict and she would not allow elbows on the table at all. So if any of us, like if we put our elbows on the table, we were actually excused from dinner. You're done. I'm like, wow, pretty serious. And that's what Paul is doing here. He says, hey, when you come in this manner, your elbows are on the table, you're done. The cross of Jesus Christ, which is the focal point of all of our lives, but of this table in particular this morning, the cross is about peace. It's about God creating giving us the opportunity to have peace with him because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, that because of his blood, we can have peace with God. Amen? And and that peace extends from the body of Christ to the body of Christ, his church, us. And so when we come to the table, it is about peace with God and with others. It is about, we sang about it already, it's about reconciliation. It's about extending forgiveness to people as we have been forgiven in Christ, by God in Christ. It is about breaking down and removing barriers between people. What Christ did is all about bringing people together and when we attempt to undo what God did, he is not pleased at all. I I really love the story of, of Central. If you're fairly new here, maybe you haven't heard it, but when... Um, when Marcy and I first showed up on the scene and kind of went through, I got familiar with baptism and ministry partnership and what Central is all about. Um, The history of our church was explained a little bit. I mean, it started, you know, back in, what was it, the 1940s? And and grew rapidly, planted another church, which we're on the course of doing now again. I love it. But there was a season of, of history at Central that was not, not so good. There were divisions. There were factions. And the church paid the price, and it, and it actually dwindled down to a small number. And this small number said, you know, what do we do? Do we continue? Do we just close the doors? What do we do? And what they did is amazing, and we need to keep telling the story. There was a time of public confession and repentance and saying, you know, we didn't get this right. You know, God forgive us because uh, we've gotten in the way 
and the church has suffered, but we want to do it better. And out of that came a group of people who prayed diligently that new life would come to Central. They prayed specifically for young families and for children. And did you see the exodus of children coming down the stairs and across the front and up every aisle to go to kids' church? It's because people said, we want to do it right. We want to be a unified church. And God is, God is blessing, again, central in so much because of that. Barriers are removed, and we need to protect that. We need to protect that. If you, if you back up uh, to the beginning of this letter, Paul sets a foundation, and then in verse 10 he says, I appeal to you, his first appeal, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, family, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. This morning, we're gonna, I'm going to ask us to exercise some discernment and judgment, and we need to be united in those things. You know the, you know the phrase, uh, we, well, you know, we just need to agree to disagree. <laughs> you know that phrase? The Bible says something else, actually, right now, right here. Paul is saying, you know what, we need to agree to agree. That's what we need to do. We need to agree to agree. In fact, this uh, issue is so serious to the apostle that he wrote to some young pastors who were going to oversee their own churches, ones that he had planted and established and was going to leave to go do that in another area. He wanted to make sure they were in good hands, and so he told you know, Timothy, Titus, he said, guys, if a person is divisive, you warn them. And then if they don't change and they continue to be devices, you warn them again. And he said, after that, you ask them not to come to the table. Because that's how serious it is. The proclamation, you see, coming to communion says something. We're going to talk about what it proclaims. I already read it in the passage, but it says something. It's a proclamation of the gospel. And if we can't get this right, how are we to accomplish the, the, the purpose, the mission, the vision, and the values that God has given to this place outside of these walls seven days a week? How are we to do that? Our, our vision is to be authentic, genuine followers of Jesus Christ who lead others to do the same. And we want to see the gospel transform where God has put us in the entire eastern Fraser Valley. So for the glory of God and for the good of all people. That's why we exist. And so it's important that we come to the table in the right way because that's at stake. The second thing that Paul says here, uh, the right way is to come genuinely. And the second way, I guess, is the opposite, which is disingenuous. Paul said, you know, the only good thing about the factions that exist among you is that uh, it shows who among you is genuine. But God wants that to be all of us. He wants us to come unified. He wants us to come genuine, the real deal, not, not fake. What you see is what you get. I act the same way all the time. My behavior is, is Christ-like and it's consistent. We're not, you know, God isn't demanding perfection from us. That's not possible. But he is asking us to strive to be like him and to be consistent about it. Disingenuous literally means to be insincere, hypocritical, and duplicitous. That means that, you know, I can live my life 
Monday through Saturday any which way I want. But when I come here on Sunday, I put on a different face. I put on my church face. Pretend that it's all good. Go through the motions to make myself feel better and, and, and look good. And then I repeat it all over again the rest of the week, having very little regard for other people. Paul said, if that's how it is when you come to church, those are bad manners and you shouldn't come to the table. Number three, and these build on each other. Um, we need to be, uh, the, the proper table manners is to be Christ-centered. And what's out of bounds, the worse, is to be self-centered. We, we can't be genuine if we're focused on ourselves. I, I really love, I'm going to get the name right this service, Timothy. I loved your testimony. I love the fact that you were baptized this morning. It was an amazing statement to all of us. I loved it when you said, I don't know if you caught it, but that you wear the same thing every day because, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm on a mission to forget myself. Like, way to go. Way to go. I'm on a mission to forget myself. I want to make sure that Christ is front and center, that he shines in everything I do, everything I say, all of my actions. Genuine Christ-centered behavior puts others first. Now, this church, it was pretty extreme. Uh, In the first century, they literally followed the pattern that Jesus uh, had with his disciples. They ate a meal together. And at the end of that meal, he specifically broke bread and had the cup with them to symbolize for them what he was going to do for them. And so they ate together and they ended the meal this way. And the early church carried on with that tradition of eating together a full meal. And and people that uh, already had plenty at home and could have easily filled up on food there came ahead of those who already had nothing. And then there they excluded those who are already, you know, on the margins and they took all the best for themselves. And they went overboard to the point of drunkenness. Now that's not happening here this morning. At least I hope it's not. I don't think it is. But even if it is, I mean, like, you're here, and I'm glad you're here because God is saying something to you and to me. I don't mean that literally because I don't think that's our problem, but the root issue remains, and that is me first. Me first. Uh, yesterday in our, uh, in our community, our strata, a um, few of the neighbors got together and did a good thing for one of the other neighbors who's having... Uh, significant health problems right now and cannot do much. So they said, we want to we make sure that Christmas decorations go up. So Pastor Ron, you're not alone there. Christmas decorations went up uh, yesterday. Some of the neighbors uh, got together and one of the neighbors kind of cornered me a little bit and expressed her uh, disillusionment and dismay with our society. She said, you know what, people, she said, people are so rude. They're so rude. And they are so self-centered. And nobody is patient anymore. They can't wait for anything. (laughs) And I said, like, are you reading my notes as I was preparing my sermon today? And we had a chance to engage a little bit in that, which was a wonderful thing. And, and And this is what she said. She repeated it several times. Our society is so broken. It's so broken. And I agreed with her and I said, yes, it is. And that's why Jesus was broken. Jesus is broken for our brokenness.
that we might learn not to be rude, not to be self-centered, to wait for one another and put them first, following the example of Jesus. Jesus said, the Son of Man, referring to himself, he, did, he said this to his disciples, um, you know, and, and, and during the supper, the last supper that he had with them, which is what our, last, our communion is modeled after, he, he said, you know what, the, the Son of Man didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus literally got down on his knees and he washed the feet of his disciples. It's amazing. The only way this is possible, uh, the do, is in humility. The don't is the result, which is humiliation. P- putting others first begins with humility. And some in this church, the ones who suffered at the hands of those who were self-centered, they were humiliated. A lack of humility results in humiliation, and that is not, not a good thing. Humiliation is out of bounds, extremely bad etiquette. And if you, this morning, have ever been humiliated in a church, and I hope it's never been here, and I hope it never happens, but if you have, I just want to say to you that I am sorry, and that should never happen. Humiliation should never happen. Christ, on the other hand, humiliated himself. He emptied himself completely. He humbled himself. He was put on public display to be mocked, to be beaten, to be tortured, to be put to death at the hands of sinners so that you, so that I, could be saved. (laughs) And in Philippians 2, he said, you know, Paul said, if you have any encouragement in being united with Christ, if there's any fellowship, any, you know, do the same as Jesus. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Follow the pattern of Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the fifth thing, is uh, actions that are commendable versus actions that are condemnable. Divisive, disingenuous, self-centered, humiliating behavior that despises Christ and his people. It's, It's literally what this text tells us. People, Acts chapter 20 tells us, who were obtained with the very blood of Jesus Christ. It, it actually results in judgment and discipline. And that's why um, in, in many churches, in, including here, when some people come under church discipline and, and it happens, this passage talks about when we are judged by the Lord because we fail to judge ourselves, there's, we fall under God's discipline and it's an opportunity. It's a good thing for us to turn our lives around and get back on track so that we will not be condemned with the world because God does not want us to be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So live it. That's what Paul is saying. But, those, but people that are disciplined in the church are actually asked by the leaders of the church to refrain from communion until there's been repentance and reconciliation and restoration. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing because it gets people back on track. And we do it and God does it because he loves us. 
But we must never forget that we serve a holy God who takes this all very seriously because it was his blood that was shed on the cross. And Paul is pointing us to the seriousness of this. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 31 says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, through the body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope, to the gospel, without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up towards love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Then he says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We don't talk about this much. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved for the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people." It is a fearful thing, to, fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And we need to have that in mind as we come to the table. So Paul says in this text, uh, what the, what the better is then to come in a worthy manner. This is the last thing. And the worse is in an unworthy manner. But the big question is, How do I know if I'm eating at the table in a worthy manner or an unworthy manner? Good question. Glad you asked. And this calls for a time of examination and discernment because Paul uses those two words in the text. Therefore, a person ought to examine himself and there has to be discernment about the body. So we're going to do those two things this morning as we prepare for the table. You know, you want to know whether you're worthy to drive a car or ride a motorcycle or, you know, sell insurance or to even to cut somebody's hair or to practice medicine. <laughs> you must go through a process of examination and discernment. And so this morning, that's exactly what we're going to do because when we come to the table, we need to do it in the right way. And when we do that, the result is this. It proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. It is a proclamation of the gospel. It is the proclamation of good news that Jesus shed his blood and was broken in his flesh. He bore our sins on the cross, on the tree, that we might not fall under condemnation, that we might have life. He took our place. He was our substitute. That is the declaration. It says something about how we come to the table. And so we ought to examine. So this is what we're going to do. A little bit of self-examination, just in the quietness of your heart. You may want to close your eyes, look at the screen. I'm going to read a bunch of scriptures. I want to fall under the word of God today as we do this. We need to judge ourselves. 
we need to judge ourselves and ask, ask ourselves the question in these six categories that I just talked about on the table. Am I living in unity with others? Or is there someone that I need to reconcile with? Um, is there somebody that I am at odds with? Is there a lack of peace in my heart? And so if the Lord is bringing something to mind as you pray about that, the person, you know, commit yourself to make that right. If the person is here, you may even during communion just go tap them on the shoulder and say, we need to talk outside. Let's go. And I need to be reconciled. I need to forgive you. I need to be forgiven if I've done something wrong. Second thing is uh, we need to ask, am I casually going through the motions or am I taking this seriously? Am I genuine? Am I living a Christ-centered or other and other-focused life? Number four, am I, am I committed to living with humility, serving others ahead of myself, putting them first, other people? Number five, am I in Christ because there is no condemnation for those who are in him? Am I in Christ? That's a question you have to ask yourself. And, and I'm going to share the gospel with you this morning so that you will know whether you are or not. And then am I worthy? Am I, am I worthy to approach this table? It's a, it's a question we need to ask ourselves and our worthiness is based maybe on something that we don't expect. But here's the discernment. Paul said, don't come without discerning Christ's body. So we're going to do that in two ways. What Christ actually did on the cross, the body of Christ. And then we're, our relation and standing with his body, the church. Because they're both Christ's body. So first of all, what is your discernment about Christ's body, what he did on the cross? Have you believed the gospel? Titus chapter 3 said, but, it says this, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You see, ultimately, partaking in a worthy manner is not about what we do because our best efforts at worthiness, our best shot at righteous and holy living is still considered by God as filthy rags. We, we just don't, we fall short of this holy God who revealed himself to us in Jesus. We fall short. And it doesn't matter if you fall short a half an inch or you fall short 100 feet, you still fall short. You miss the mark. And there's nothing that we can do that will make us worthy of God's love because he loves us unconditionally, even if you are the worst enemy of God, even if your lifestyle is the most sinful possible. God still loves you. And there's nothing we can do to make us worthy of relationship with God or worthy of spending eternity with him in heaven except for one thing, one thing. And that is to declare that he is worthy because he is the lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world. He is the perfect sacrifice whose blood covers, atones, and pays for our sin. He took our place. He gave himself over to death that we might have life. And I have other passages. You can ask me for them later, but Hebrews talks about this. Timothy, 
Ephesians, I want to read verse 7 uh, through 10 of Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, whether in heaven and things on earth. And Romans 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath, uh, from the wrath of, saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And so coming to the Lord's table in a worthy manner is just that. That our worthiness is 100% based on the worthiness of Christ. We must believe that in our hearts. We must declare it with our mouths and we must live that by faith. When Jesus began his ministry at the very beginning, he said to people, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's what, those are the words of Jesus. And John said, if we confess our sins, if we repent, if we just agree with God, this is what repentance is, saying, God, you're right, I'm wrong. I want to turn it around and go your way. <laughs> if you confess that and you confess your sin, Say, I am unworthy, but you are worthy. He is faithful and he is just and he will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And in Romans 10, Paul said, we, we need to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's now the leader of my life. I'm going his way. And I'm going to believe that you died and that you rose again. And when we do that with our mouth and with our heart, you know, we are justified and we are saved. Amen? And so that is how we need to discern the body of Jesus Christ given for us on the cross. But we also need to discern the body of Christ, which is us, the church. This passage says five times, when you come together, when you come together, this is a corporate thing. This is a church thing, a family thing. Uh, Mika Meyer, who is an expert in, in etiquette and founder of a of a, of a group called the Duchess Effect. She actually teaches people how to be a princess. <laughs> she, she says, etiquette is not about being stuffy. Etiquette is about relating to other people. I love that. Etiquette is about relating to other people. So how do you relate to other people? How do you relate to the body of Christ? Because how we treat each other is a reflection. It says something, and it's a reflection of what we believe about the head of the family. Christ and God the Father. 
So there's a bunch of passages. Again, I'm not going to read them all, but in Philippians, again, Paul said, if you really are united with Christ, then humble yourself and consider others better than yourself. In 2 Corinthians, the follow-up letter, he said, you know, for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. And he said, in that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Because Christ reconciled us to God, we now have to be reconciled with other people. And, and we need to help others do that. Are you reconciled? Are you helping others be reconciled? I want to end with Romans 12 in our discernment in the body, and then we're going to partake. So worship team, if you want to come and join me while I'm reading this passage, you, you go ahead and do that. But Paul says, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to, to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is hurt, thirsty, Give him something to drink. Invite him to the table. Invite him to the table. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals in his head. And that means literally to bless and provide. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this morning, if you have examined yourself and you're willing to discern in these two areas, to properly discern the body of Christ, his body on the cross and his body of the church, then you are invited joyfully and thankfully to come sit at the table to partake of the Lord's Supper. My neighbor who is disillusioned with the brokenness of society, you know, she was right. And it's why Christ was broken. To redeem a broken people and for a redeemed people to show the world, the Redeemer, to show them a better way. So let's proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you revealed your heart and you revealed your very self by taking on human flesh, walking this earth in perfect sinlessness and taking on all of our sin that we might be set free, that we can have a right standing before you, a righteous and a holy God, through the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. And as we examine ourselves and come under the discernment of your word about your body, Lord, we need your grace again. We need your forgiveness. We need your ability to live, to believe, to confess, and then to live the way you want us to. So help us to keep that in mind as we come now to the table. For we pray it in your precious Son's name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.